Hey listeners, we're winding down the end of Season 2 of Ed Infinitum. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have, then I'd ask you to please seriously consider going to our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, clicking support the show, and making a donation. Even $5 or $10 can help sustain the show, and like a good education, it'll reap far greater dividends that last a lifetime, or at least last a good long trip in your car. Thank you so much, and here we go. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 14, School for Scandal, Part 2, Value-Added Messes. Last episode, in the first of this three-part series that finishes the show's second season, we set the stage for what would eventually develop into a nationwide series of school scandals where principals and teachers were exposed as having tampered with student test scores, and some ended up going to jail for it for quite some time. I'll give a quick recap as follows. The mid-2000s were an era where education reformers embraced the notion that school inequities inherent in the American public education system since its inception could be, if not eliminated, at least significantly improved through the leadership of outsiders from the business and political worlds, who zeroed in on what they felt was the core problem of teachers not being held accountable enough for student learning, make teacher retention and advancement dependent upon student advancement on standardized test scores, the reasoning went, and those carrots and sticks would push bad teachers out, reward the work of good teachers, and ultimately benefit all students, especially the most vulnerable ones, the ones that in their analysis, too many teachers had just given up on, written off because of low income or race, or some other factor perceived as an insurmountable obstacle to learning. In this bold new era of accountability, the goal was that no child would be left behind. Many saw the poster person for this crusade as Michelle Ree, the chancellor of the Washington DC school system during the mid to late 2000s, who had cultivated a reputation for mercilessness. She spoke with pride about having once eaten a bee to show her students how tough she was, and, empowered by both the No Child Left Behind Act and Washington, D.C.'s newly elected mayor, severely weakened teacher tenure protections, fired over 200 teachers, and gave others, of, and gave others $1.5 million worth of bonuses, all based on something called value-added measures of these teachers' effects on student learning. Under Ree's leadership, Fully 50% of a teacher's evaluation rested on their value-added impact on the standardized, rested on these value-added measures of their impact on, on the standardized test scores of the students in their classes. Despite outcry from a legion of critics, Ree's method produced results, double-digit gains in test scores within only two years among some of the poorest and lowest achieving students in the nation. And Ree's method was thus replicated all across the nation. Interestingly enough, something else was also happening in the mid to late 2000s in America involving tremendous gains. Mortgage-backed securities were soaring in value. Financial managers like Bernard Madoff were delivering 20 or even 40% returns on investments, and a few skeptics were starting to comb through the data there, wondering if all this might not be a little too good to be true. Well, we all know how that ended. The bursting of the housing bubble and the start of the Great Recession, whose effects lasted even into this year before, well, coronavirus knocked everything completely to heck. The thing is, a lot of folks who really understood investing saw this coming, and a lot of folks who really didn't understand investing but thought they did were blindsided. And a very similar thing happened with schools during this time as well. To help us be in the know, we need to spend a little bit of time focusing on everyone's favorite subject, the statistics of value-added measurement! Woo! 
No, really, I promise I'll make it fun. Stay with. The idea behind value-added measurement seems straightforward. You compare a teacher's effect on student learning against other teachers with similar types of students. Effect on learning is usually quantified by some hard number like a standardized test score, or more specifically, growth in standardized test scores from one period of time to another. So you get to address that question of did students in Ms. Jones' class make greater gains than students in Mr. Smith's class on the same tests during the same time period. Got that? Okay, now here's the thing about conducting studies, and really any social science research, but especially education research. It is not like conducting, say, medical research. Research in the field of medicine depends upon randomized clinical trials. You're testing a new drug or procedure against either doing nothing or doing a limited number of alternatives, usually fewer than four. So let's say, for example, you're trying to find a cure for COVID-19, because right now pretty much literally everybody is, and you want to test a new drug. We'll call it Vistexia, because as far as I can tell, that name hasn't already been taken. You hear that, Pfizer? You owe me royalties if you try and swipe that. Anyway, you get a bunch of COVID-19 sufferers together and, presumably while wearing a very thick mask, administer about half of them Vistexia and the other half a sugar pill that does nothing. And ideally, it's what we call a double-blind study, which means that neither group knows whether they've got the drug or the placebo. So you then look to see if the patients who got the drug had swifter or better improvements of their COVID-19 symptoms than those who got that sugar pill. Simple, right? Well, not entirely, right? How do you know that Vistexia, the drug, is in fact what's responsible for the improvement, and that the patients who improved didn't just get better on their own, or get better because of some other factor, like exercising regularly, or eating lots of spam, or living in Florida for some reason, or they just had good genes? Well, what you do is you get as large as possible a sample of patients who are randomly selected from the widest and most representative possible swath of the general population. The more representative and the more random, the more chances you'll average out those potential confounding effects of exercise and spam and Florida, because presumably in that big pile of people, you'll have other folks in there who eat spam and live in Florida but didn't get the vistexia and didn't get better. And so you can reasonably assume then that a statistically significant observed difference between the group that took the vistexia and the control group that just took the sugar pill is because of the vistexia and you can start putting it on the market and making a goddamn fortune because this is America and you're surely overcharging patients like robber barons. <clears throat> anyway, does that all make sense? Good. Now, let me tell you why so much of that process just does not work when you're doing research into teacher efficacy. Value-added measurement of teacher effects positions teachers in the role of the vestexia. They're the treatment drug, but each teacher is her own separate drug. And in a school district with hundreds of teachers, the amount of information available for each teacher is relatively small. You've got the data from just a few students in a few classes. You also can't really set up a true experimental study because obviously the same group of students in the same class cannot be simultaneously taught full-time by two different teachers for you to compare the effects. So here's where the statistical gymnastics and contortions begin. You start comparing teachers against these weird constructs, like finding the difference between the average gain obtained by students in this class versus a composite average student in that district, and or you look at the performance of the class taught by this teacher versus the average gain that theoretically would be obtained by that same class if it was taught by the average teacher in the district. 
My Native Massachusetts compares student growth between one test and another with the rate of growth achieved by a hypothetical composite student made up from data from all students in the district occupying the same band or range of average test performance. Got that? And believe it or not, you can actually make stuff like this work out mathematically. But the more you depend upon these hypotheticals and these constructs, the further you're actually getting from the reality of what's happening with the real students in those real teachers' classrooms. But let's say those statistical constructs are just so perfect it doesn't matter. Then you'd be all set, right? Well, no, because there's another huge difference here from the Vistexia study. Students are not randomly grouped into classes, and teachers are not randomly assigned to classes not in any real actual school. Tracking and other forms of ability grouping, parents' and students' choices based on a wide variety of factors, all of that governs school enrollment and course selection. And teachers are furthermore often assigned to classes based on seniority or special qualifications or just what classes they personally prefer to teach. So with neither students nor teachers randomly assigned, it becomes difficult, if not impossible, to ensure a representative population that averages out all the other possible factors that could influence student achievement that have nothing to do with the teacher. And you would believe some of these factors that can influence student learning, from obvious things like absentee rates to slightly less obvious things like whether they have friends in their class, or what time of the day the class meets, or what they've eaten that morning. And for crying out loud, there's some pretty persuasive evidence out there that shows that being in the lowest grade your school offers, say 6th grade in a 6th through 8 middle school, or ninth grade in a 9 through 12 high school, can correlate with lower average test performance. Of course, any number of these factors can correlate but not have a causal relationship with student learning. For example, being in the lowest grade in your school might not be what causes you to achieve at lower levels. It's probably not. It might just be a concomitant condition with, say, coming from a different feeder school at the lower levels and getting used to a new culture. And if you controlled for that and just looked at kids who came through the district all the way up in the same school from kindergarten, the effect would vanish. Look, no one's arguing that what a teacher does in the classroom doesn't have correlated effects, even causal effects, with students' achievement. But to examine a non-randomized population of students during a semester or a year and say, yep, we can be so confident in our algorithms as to declare with confidence that teacher effects and only teacher effects are causally responsible for this particular increase or decrease in those students' standardized test scores is, to use the official statistical terminology, a pretty freaking big leap. But that's nearly always the assumption that value-added measurement rests upon. Also, depending on what particular value-added measurement approach a district or a state is using, and there's a dizzying variety, the value-added calculation might rest on all kinds of other assumptions that are plain nonsense, like that a teacher's effect on students is essentially the same for all of that teacher's students in a given subject and year, and that this effect persists unchanged into the future for those students. Depending on how it's figured, evaluated measurement may also assume that every class in the same school or every school in the same district is using the exact same curriculum or suite of teaching strategies, which is true in approximately zero real-world examples of school systems. It might assume that no students are ever absent on test days, and therefore the subsequent gaps in the data from absent students would throw off your achievement figures. I can attest to that one personally, as gaps in testing data wreaked havoc with my own doctoral dissertation study way back when. So are proponents of value-added measures totally clueless about all this? Well, 
No, except perhaps in their hubris, because they often resort to ever more convoluted statistical methods and algorithms to try and compensate for all of these complicating factors I've mentioned, plus the usual ones like socioeconomics and family level of education and race and nutrition and psychological conditions and trauma exposure and lead exposure and Oh boy, it is hard to compare apples to apples when these apples are complex human beings, each with their own idiosyncratic personal and learning profiles. Now, an individual student's performance on tests is often compared to their previous performance on tests, so any individual student can technically serve as her own control group. But this is also imperfect, because kids, especially young kids, change so much in so many ways in such a short time. And yes, there are algorithms that attempt to address this as well, but at this point you are piling algorithms upon algorithms and pulling all sorts of tricks that are based on hypothetical models and assumptions that you haven't necessarily tested. And you're getting very, very distant from that nice, simple picture of students made 10% higher gains in Miss Jones' class than in Mr. Smith's, so therefore Mr. Smith should be fired and Miss Jones should get a raise. In short, value-added measurement is based on a statistical house of cards, at least so say its opponents. Supporters of value-added measures generally come back with, you teachers are just looking for excuses to blame someone or something else for your students' lack of progress, rather than look in the mirror. I'm not going to detail every salvo back and forth between these two groups. You can go to the various websites of boosters and critics of value-added measures and read all of their various debunkings of the other side's arguments. Suffice to say, most of these arguments boil down to the question of, can any value-added measurement truly and accurately take into account and filter out all of the other potential things that can influence student learning besides just the teacher's influence? And who am I, humble education professor and podcast host, to adjudicate whether or not this is true? No, instead I'll pose that question to the OGs of the standardized testing world, the trendsetters who created and managed the SAT itself, Educational Testing Services, or ETS. Oh wait, ETS did weigh in on value-added measures way back in 2005, before Michelle Rhee even came to be DC Schools Chancellor. Let's read what they had to say. Quote, since randomization is typically infeasible for the purpose of estimating teacher effects, we must resort to collecting data on teachers and students as they are found in their schools and classrooms. We then use statistical models and procedures to adjust to the extent possible for other circumstances. It is impossible, however, to document and model all such irregular circumstances. Yet, they may well influence, directly or indirectly, the answers we seek nearly as much as what the teacher actually does in the classroom. If making causal attributions is the goal, then no statistical model, however complex, and no method of analysis, however sophisticated, can fully compensate for the lack of randomization. The problem is that in the absence of randomization, it is hard to discount alternative explanations for the results that are found. End quote. Although ETS then adds, somewhat snarkily in my opinion, quote, This explains why many consider randomized experiments the gold standard in scientific work. Unquote. Now don't get me wrong, neither I nor ETS is saying that you can't measure teacher effects on student learning. Far from it. But ETS cautions that to confuse effects, which are basically the outputs of statistical algorithms, with effectiveness, which is how you interpret a teacher's direct contributions to student learning and growth, well that, friends, is something that even the folks who design the most pervasive and influential standardized test in American history say is way, way too big a leap. Okay, so that's value-added measurement of teacher impact on student learning. 
I think you can see how the average person at that time might have found that all a little bit hard to understand. But remember, the average person also didn't understand the complexities of how various mortgages, including toxic assets, were aggregated inside their investments during this time. They just looked at the returns, and the returns were really great, so they just sort of filtered out all the doomsayers who tried to explain, using incomprehensible-sounding math, that this was all built on shifting sands. And so too did most people, including most school administrators, simply accept the premise that value-added measures, even if they weren't perfect, were still somehow a more or less acceptable way of determining how effective a teacher was in the classroom, and being a means by which one would either reward or penalize that teacher for their performance. And so when Michelle Rhee and those with her philosophy touted improved test scores as proof that their practice of punishing and rewarding teachers based on value-added measures was working, the pressure was on. Across the nation, school superintendents and principals were looking at these numbers coming out of D.C. and saying, wow, if it's possible there, then it's possible here too. And we better get the hell on it, because if we don't start matching those dramatic, often double-digit percentage gains in student test scores, you can bet that our state departments of education are going to fire us and replace us with folks who will get the job done. That message, produce big results or you're out, filtered down to school principals and then on down to teachers. See what folks like Michelle Rhee are doing? That's what you've got to match. And try as they might, teachers and principals couldn't. And it wasn't always because they hadn't tried hard enough, that they didn't care enough about their students, or that they weren't sufficiently trained in effective pedagogies. Even if all that stuff had been stellar, it wouldn't have mattered. Because, as it turned out, just like with the returns on mortgage-backed securities, the only way they could have matched those numbers was through cheating. How do we know that? Because it turned out those numbers themselves were the product of cheating and fabrication. In the next and final episode of this series and this season, we'll look at the deceptions that began this whole sordid episode, how they eventually dominoed into the largest number of teachers indicted and imprisoned in American history, and what lessons, if any, America took from all this. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening. And remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great. That probably means you really like this podcast. And if so, I want to plead with you one additional time to support it with a donation, or even by becoming a patron. Hosting fees are piling up, and I'm just not sure I can really continue to make a quality season number three and beyond without a little help from you, my listeners. Remember, I'm not trying to make a profit, although that'd sure be nice. I really just want to break even. So here's your chance, dear listener. Yes, you, to make a difference and be a part of keeping this show on the air or on the wireless network or whatever. <laughs> Thanks so much.